0: Good evening and welcome to another video with a variety of true scary stories to get you through your evening. If you're enjoying these more regular uploads then let me know by dropping a like. So without further ado, let's begin. Number 1 It's official, I am an old man. For the last couple of years I have comforted myself by saying I am in my early 70s, but math is simple and unforgiving. Today is my 75th birthday, and God, the years do fly. I'm not here for your well wishes. This is hardly a milestone I'm excited about. I'm glad to still be here, of course, but I find I have less and less to live for with every passing year. My bones ache, my kids live far away, and the other side of my bed has been empty for just over 8 months now. In fact, once I cast my vote against the goddamn Trump this November, I may have nothing to live for at all. So spare me your happy birthdays and your congratulations, if you please. I'm here because I have a story for you, and it's one I've never told before. I used to think I kept it inside because it was silly, or maybe because nobody would believe it. I've found, though, that the older you grow, the more exhausting it becomes to lie to yourself. If I'm being perfectly honest, I've never told anybody this story because it scares me, almost to death. But death seems friendlier than it used to. So listen close. The year was 1950, the setting a small town in Maine. I was a boy of nine, rather small for my age, with only one friend in the world to speak of, and his family. Seemingly on a whim, decided to move 2,000 miles away. It was shaping up to be the worst summer of my life. My pop wasn't around, and my mum was a chore whore. Boy, was I proud of myself when I came up with that one. So it wasn't appropriate to hang around the house. With some hesitation, I decided the public library was the place to be that summer. The library's collection of books, particularly children's books, was meagre to say the least. But within the walls of that miserly structure, I found no undone chores, no nagging mother, God rest her soul, and perhaps most importantly, no other children with whom I would be expected to associate. I was the only kid with a low enough social status to spend the previous days of freedom, sulking amid the bookshelves and that was just fine with me the first half of my summer was even more dreadful than i had imagined it would be i would sleep until 10 do my chores and then ride my bike to the library and by bike i mean rusty log of shit attached to a pair of wheels once there i would split my time between unintentionally annoying the elderly patrons and deliberately doing so One pleasant lady actually interrupted my incessant tongue-clicking to hiss a shut-the-fuck-up at me, the first time I ever heard a grown-up use the F-word. Big fucking deal, I know, but in those days it was unheard of. The dreary days turned to woeful weeks. I had actually begun praying for school to start again, until i discovered the basement. I could have sworn I'd roamed every inch of that library, but one day, in the far corner behind the foreign language collection. I stumbled across a small wooden door I had never seen before. That's where it all began. The door was windowless and made from oak and looked far older than the wall at which it rested. It had a knob of black metal that quite literally looked ancient. I wouldn't have been surprised to learn it was crafted in the 17th century. Engraved on the knob was what appeared to be a single footprint. It had the sense that whatever lay beyond this door was forbidden to me and therefore probably the most interesting thing I would encounter all summer. I quickly glanced around to make sure nobody was watching me, then turned the heavy knob, slipped behind the door and shut it. There was nothing, only darkness. I took a couple of steps and then stopped, unnerved by the totality of the shadow which surrounded me. I waved my hands in front of me in an attempt to find a wall or a shelf for anything to hold on to. What I actually found was a far more subtle and small string, dangling from above, but far more useful. I grabbed it firmly and pulled it down. Back in the day, lots of light bulbs were operated with strings, and this was one of them. My surroundings were instantly illuminated. I was standing on a small, dusty platform that looked as though it hadn't seen life in quite some time. To my left was a crickety-ass spiral staircase, made of wood and appearing ready to collapse at any second. The bulk was the only source of light in the room, and it was feeble, so when I peered over the railing to see what lay below, the bottom of the staircase dissolved into the darkness. I was beginning to feel scared. This place, wherever I was, seemed to have no business in a town library. It was as though I were in a completely different building, but no nine-year-old likes to let a mystery go unsolved. Looking back, I wish I could tell my prepubescent self to turn around, go back, and do anything else besides descending that staircase. You'll be spared a lot of sleepless nights, I'd say. But of course, I didn't know that then, and I may not have listened even if I had. So instead of turning back, I took a deep breath, gripped the railing, and glared resolutely forward as I began my descent. The weight on the railing was dry and covered with splinters. I immediately let go holding my hands out for balance as I carefully traversed the staircase. It was, or at least seemed, very long, and with only dim glow from the string bulb far above me, my heart pounded mercilessly in the darkness. Even kids can sense when something isn't right. I think they just don't always give a shit. By the time my feet reached a cement floor at the bottom, the light from the bulb above was very nearly a memory. But there was a new light source, and God, I'll never forget it. Directly in front of me was a door, massive and a deep shade of red. The light was coming from behind the door, and it shone out in the lines from all four sides, a sinister, dimly glowing rectangle. For the second time, I took a deep breath and went through a door I shouldn't have. In contrast to the dark room I entered from, the room behind the door was blinding, with my eyes adjusted. What I saw nearly took my breath away. It was a library. The most perfect library imaginable. I gaped in wonder as I stepped almost reverently further into the room. It was beautiful. It was smaller than the library above, much smaller, but it seemed to be almost tailor made for me. The shelves were packed with brightly coloured titles. With brightly coloured titles. Both armchairs in the middle of the room were exquisitely comfortable and the smell, my god, this smell was simply unbelievable. Sort of a mixture of citrus and pine. I simply can't do it justice with words, so I'll suffice it to say that I've never smelled anything better, not in my 75 years. What was this room? Why had I never heard of it before? Why was nobody else here? Those were the questions I should have been asking, but I was intoxicated. As I gazed around at all the books and basked in the smell of paradise, I could only form one thought I will never be bored again In truth boredom only hid from me for three years It was on my 12th birthday 63 years ago to this day that everything changed Before that day I visited my basement sanctuary as often as I could usually several times a week I never saw another soul down there yet strangely remained free of suspicion I never removed a book from that room but instead would pick up a particular volume wherever I had stopped reading during my previous visit. I sat always in the same deep purple armchair, and always leaving its twin barren and directly across from myself. The armchair was mine. The other was, well, I suppose I couldn't have articulated it then, but better than I can now. But it wasn't mine, that's for damn sure. On my twelfth birthday, I arrived later than usual. My mum had invited a couple of classmates and some cousins over to our house to celebrate, a gesture which I found more tedious than touching. Really, I just wanted to spend my birthday sitting and reading and Smelling Paradise. Eventually our guests went home, and I made it to the library about 15 minutes before closing time. That didn't matter, the workers never checked down there before they locked up. I was free to stay as late as I wished. This particular night, I was devouring the final chapters of an epic adventure, knights Swords, Dragons and the like. I didn't smell it until I reached the final words and closed the book. The once exquisite aroma of that room had turned sour. I sat for a moment, unsettled. Objectively, I could recognise that the smell was actually the same as it had been before, that mixture of citrus and pine. I just perceived it differently, and I didn't like it anymore. It was a nasal version of an optical illusion, you know, the one that looks like a young woman glancing backwards, but all of a sudden you see that it's just really an old woman facing towards you. You can't unsee that, and I couldn't unsmell this. The smell was broken. The odour also seemed for the first time to be coming from somewhere specific. With a fair amount of trepidation, I stalked around the room, sniffing the air like a crazed caning until I came to a shelf near the back. The shelf was perfectly normal with the exception of one title. A large leather-bound cover of solid-faced maroon, with one striping black footprint at the top of the spine. This was the source of the smell, and saw one sentence scrawled neatly in blood-red ink atop the first page. Rest your sorrows down, friends, and leave them where they lie. I stared at this sentence, mesmerized, as I began to retreat to my chair. I turned a page, blank. The smell became stronger another page, blank and the smell grew stronger still I stopped for a moment, suppressed a gag and continued walking then as I neared the armchairs I turned one final page and there in the same sinister print was the last thing I expected to see my own name I dropped the book and I began to sprint towards the door but as I shifted my gaze forward my heart leapt to my throat and I stopped to my tracks the empty chair wasn't empty anymore An aged man in a suit sat before me, one leg crossed over the other, contemplating me with piercing grey eyes and a light smirk. This was all too much. I fell to my knees and expelled the contents of my stomach onto the carpet. I wiped my mouth, staring at my vomit, when I heard the man let out a chuckle. I stared at him, disbelievingly. ''Who are you?'' I asked, panic in my voice. The man leapt to his feet, grabbed me gently by the shoulders and helped me to the chair he sat once again in his own I fear we got off to a bad start he said glancing to the pile of sick on the carpet the smell it does take some getting used to who are you? I repeated tonight you will know the hardship like you've never known before he said I come as a friend offering you refuge from it and from all the other storms which lie ahead I wanted nothing more than to leave at that moment, but I remained seated. I asked him what he was talking about. Your mother is dead, my boy, by her own hand in her kitchen. The scene is gruesome, I must admit, he said in sorrowful tones. But was there a playful glint in his eye? Surely you wish to avoid this path that I can show you a safer one. My blood ran cold at the horrors this man spoke of, but I did not believe him. What do you want with me? I demanded, trying to sound braver than I felt. He laughed an old, raspy yelp that seemed to shake him to his bones. Nothing but your friendship, dear boy, he said. Then sensing I found his answer inadequate, he expanded. I want you to come on a journey with me. My work is noble, and you will make a fine apprentice. And maybe when I'm done, he sighed tiredly, running his bony finger through his thin white hair. Maybe then, my work can be yours I stood up shuffling towards the door but never breaking his gaze you're crazy I told him my mum isn't dead she's not see for yourself if you must he said gesturing towards the door I threw him a contemptuous glare and bolted for the exit as my hand closed around the knob he said my name softly in spite of myself I turned around your road won't be easy friend if it ever becomes too much for you "'and I mean ever,' he said, pausing to sweep his hand over the room. "'You know where to find me.' "'I slammed the door behind me and took the decrepit stairs two at a time. "'I exited the library, clambered onto my bike and hightailed it home. "'The front door was wide open. "'I dismounted, leaving my bike in a heap on the ground, "'and approached the house cautiously. "'The old man was lying. He must have been. "'Still, tears began to sting my eyes.' Heart pounding, I stepped inside and called to my mother. I heard no answer, so I turned into the kitchen. To this day, I don't know why she did it. I have lived in a small town in Maine my entire life. Although I've kept mostly clear of the public library, once in my late twenties, I summoned the courage to step inside. Life was good at that time, and my fear had begun to morph into idle curiosity. Where the door to my basement sanctuary once stood, was only a blank wall. I asked the librarian what had become of the basement, though in my heart I knew the answer. There was no basement, she said. There had never been a basement. In fact, if she had her facts correct, city zoning audiences prohibited a basement in that area. I've been haunted by that sticky sweet smell, the poisonous blend of citrus and pine, and ever since that long ago birthday. When I saw my mother in the kitchen that day, collapsed in a pool of her own blood, I smelled it. When a man claiming to be my father knocked on my college apartment door, begged me for money and beat me within an inch of my life when I refused, I smelled it. When my wife miscarried her second child, I smelled it. And again when she miscarried her fourth. When our oldest son got behind the wheel of the family book, completely shipfaced and got his girlfriend killed, I smelled it. I began to smell it periodically as my wife became sick. She died late last year. And now I'm alone for the first time in more than half a century Now I smell it every day And it feels like an invitation A few months ago I went back to the library And the small oak door with the ancient handle was there Right where it used to be My evening walk has brought me past that library every day since But I haven't gone inside Maybe tonight I will I'm frightened to die, yes But lately I'm even more frightened to keep living. The old man was right. My road hasn't been easy. And I doubt it will get any easier. Rest your sorrows down, friend. And leave them where they lie. He promised relief. A refuge, he said. Was he right about that too? There's only one way to find out. After all, I still know where to find him. Number 2 I've always had a weak heart not just physically, I've always been afraid of my own shadow. It was unsurprising when the doctors told me my heart murmur wasn't just a heart murmur. A year of tests, a year of therapy, constant trips to the hospital, and I was finally told that it had all been for nothing. My poor weak heart wouldn't last till Christmas. It's a strange thing being told that you're dying. I didn't come to the terms with it at first. I drank and spent my money. I did reckless stupid things because I was so damn scared. Then I got the news that a young woman called Laura had been declared brain dead and that I, the lucky chosen one, would be getting a brand new heart a week later. I drove to the hospital slowly, carefully, and readied myself for the ordeal that was to come. As I was lying in bed on the last night, the thought of Laura swirled around in my head, and it wouldn't leave me alone. It was like her name was in flashing lights every time I closed my eyes. It was wrong, I know it was but I had to see the woman who was giving me her heart. It didn't feel right not to put a face to the one who was saving my life. I knew her name. I knew what ward she was staying on. I'd overheard the two nurses discussing it. I wandered down the mandarin hallways until I found what I was looking for, taking my time, making sure I didn't miss any name. I guess I had time on my hands now. In the second to last room, she lay in bed. A woman sat on the bed next to her, Holding her hand, my own weak heart stuttered. Excuse me, I had no idea what to say to her. I'm Jenna, I'm the person, I'm having surgery tomorrow and what I assumed was Laura's mother stood up and I could tell from the look in her eye that she knew who I was. Thank you for visiting, I know it's strange but a part of her is going to be living on in you. I wanted to meet you. I stood there, helpless and lost for words. Laura's mother beckoned me over. Please, she said, don't feel uncomfortable, it's what she would have wanted. I sat in a chair next to Laura. How did she… I-, I broke off. It was too awful to ask. Laura's mother gave me a thin smile. She was a care worker, looked after battered wives, abused women, last month she met a guy and, well, I suppose years of training can't help you when you're in love. She ignored the warning signs and he killed her. She dedicated her life to those who needed her. Laura's mother looked down. I don't know why I did it, but I reached over and held Laura's hand. I squeezed it. I'm so sorry, I had a boyfriend once who he, he was like that too. Someone like Laura convinced me to leave. Laura's mother gave me another half smile. I could see the tears in her eyes. Then Laura squeezed my hand tightly. She gripped me so hard that her fingernails dug into my skin. I recoiled, a look of horror on my face. Laura's mother looked at me calmly. She squeezes my hands sometimes as well. I think the doctors call it a muscle spasm. Either way, there's none of Laura left in there anymore. I looked at the small crescent wounds that had just started to bleed on the palm of my hand. The surgery went perfectly. I was wheeled to the recovery suite after it was over and done with. The raised wound on my chest covered by gauze. It was better if I didn't see it, I thought. I didn't need any more heart issues. I spent the first day doped up on the pain medication, eating only a little and sitting up maybe two times. It was a long process, they reassured me. Bora's mother came to visit me the day before I was due to leave. Her calm demeanour hadn't wavered, but I could see that she was suffering. She looked ten years older and her hand shook when she gave me a hug. When are you going home? Tomorrow, I told her. Please come visit whenever you want. I started to jot down my address for her when out of the corner of my eye a flash of blonde disappeared through the doorway. The same brilliant blonde as Laura's hair. Ow! I, I cried out suddenly. It felt like someone had sharply squeezed my hand so hard it had almost crushed the bones. Laura's mother rushed to my side a look of concern on her eyes. What's wrong? Is it your heart? She stumbled over the last words, coming to terms with what she had said. I tried to reassure her and said it, and said I'd let the doctors know, and she left with a look of worry on her face. When I looked down, a new set of crescent fingernail marks were below the ones that Laura had made, ten identical bleeding smiles. The taxi ride home was short, and before I knew it, I was back in my own flat. It felt strange to try and slot back into where I'd left off. My life had been almost over the last time I'd been here. I looked over the mess and the cardboard boxes. The remnants of one night where I had tearfully tried to pack and store my belongings so my parents wouldn't have to do it when I died. Laura's heart beat so strongly it felt like it would come out of my chest. I did this all the time and realised that this was a healthy heart. It did this all the time and I realised that this is what a healthy heart must feel like so why couldn't I shake my feeling of unease? That night I had a dream. Laura was in her hospital bed, but her mother was gone. I could hear my heart, Laura's heart, beating in my eardrum so loudly it was painful. I tried to cover them, but my hands were pinned to my sides. Some unexplainable force was moving me towards the motionless figure of Laura on the bed. Her lips were blue and the window had come open, whipping her blonde hair around her face. I was almost on top of her when her eyes flew open. They were milky white, the eyes of someone dead. Get out, she rasped, her voice guttural. I could hear the heart beat faster and faster, drumming until I thought I couldn't take it anymore. Then I woke up. The sound had been real. Laura's heart was so loud it felt like it would rupture my eardrums and I screamed in agony, trying to cover my ears. It was useless. It was coming from some deep place inside me. I could feel it reverberating around the hollows of my chest. I stumbled out of bed, gasping for air, and tried to find my phone. I needed to call someone, anyone, an ambulance or my mum. Anyone that would pick up. Get out. It was a faint whisper over the hammering thumps of Laura's heart. A low, guttural voice that sounded like it had been made by an animal. And I crawled to the door down the hallway, choking on my screams for help. My neighbor opened the door, his eyes as wide as saucers, at the sight of me on the floor clutching my chest. He drove me to the hospital as I cried in the passenger seat of his car. After about 50 different checkups, the doctors told me that absolutely nothing was wrong with me. They told me my heart was regular, my blood pressure was normal, and that everything was going just swimmingly. I stood in the waiting area, wallowing in my shame and frustration. That heart didn't belong to me. My phone buzzed on the counter and a known number. Great. That was all I needed. More unexplained scary things like a stranger on the end of the phone. My voice sounded small on the line. Hello? Good morning. This is Thames Valley Police. We've called to report an incident that occurred in your flat at around 1.30am today. I felt a wave of embarrassment. I'm so sorry. I recently had surgery and I wasn't feeling well. I had my neighbour drive me to the hospital and I think I panicked a little in the hallway before I left. There was a small silence on the other end of the phone. I'm afraid this is something you might want to be sitting down for. I felt Laura's heart beat strong and calm. There was an incident of forced entry by Mr. Samuel Matthews. According to our police reports, he's your ex-partner and you filed a restraining order against him in September 2017. My blood ran cold. I did He's in police custody We found an automatic weapon on him And we believe he had the intent to harm you You have an officer currently stationed at your flat Who can fill you in depending on how long your hospital stay will be I thanked him and hung up the phone For a moment I leaned against the wall the horror slowly spreading over me If I had been in my flat ten minutes later He would have found me Laura's heartbeat filled my ears again but now they were gentle, calming. Her mother said she dedicated every part to helping those who needed it. I put both my hands on my chest, overwhelmed by my own gratitude, and listened to Laura. Number 3 I am infatuated with her, utterly infatuated, and it wasn't at a healthy level, far from it. I would think about her every moment she was away. I would sometimes sit on my couch and just stare at my phone waiting for her to text. I'd tell myself, don't contact her, don't. It will come off as too strong. But then I'd still find myself clicking her name in my contacts list before the inner voice would continue. You don't want her to know how desperately smitten you are with her. It's unattractive. It will scare her off. No, you must wait for her to call you this time. But it was excruciating and exhausting almost unbearable I once heard that the ancient Greeks believed that falling madly and irrationally in love with someone was a curse that you would wish upon your enemies I can never understand what they meant after all, isn't falling head over heels in love the ultimate goal nowadays but now that it's happened to me I have to say the ancient Greeks were right this is a curse I was barely in control of myself almost as though my infatuation with her had possessed me The two of us were sexually active together, but still in the dating phase. We were at that make or break era of a blossoming relationship where we'd either have the talk and formally be in a relationship, or we'd start slowly drifting apart. The latter of which I don't think I'll be able to cope with. Honestly, I wouldn't be able to. Almost everything about her captivates me, the way she held her hand over her mouth when she laughed, how she'd caress the pendant on her necklace when she was frightened, How'd she twirl her hair and her finger when she was excited? All of it. Her smell, her smile, her eyes. Yeah, I know. I'll probably make you sick reading about it. I'd feel the same way. I was never the hopeless romantic type, but now I can't stop fantasizing about her. I'd think about doing the long three hour hike up to that magnificent view from one of our first dates, to that first kiss, as we overlooked the lights of the city. But this time, I'd get down on one knee, bring out the ring, and, well, you know what would happen next. Alright, fine, I'll stop. Yes, this is a girl I'd only been casually dating for a couple of months. I shouldn't be thinking about proposing yet, but I know that. I'm just barely able to control myself any longer. I feel as though I'm losing power over the decisions I make. And that brings me to why I'm here writing this at the moment. It started with the first real thing that troubled me about her. We never actually spent a night together, no matter how late she was over. Once either of us showed signs of being tired, she'd up and leave. She wouldn't leave awkwardly or in anger, just as a casual kiss goodnight, a smile and a call me soon. It was something I didn't really even notice the first few times she did it, but after almost eight weeks of dating, it became strange. I'd ask her about it. I took drinking almost an entire bottle of wine before I had the courage to do it. She looked almost defeated when I asked her and lowered her eyes in embarrassment. I knew this talk was coming eventually, she started. She took a deep breath with a long drawn out exhale. Recently, she paused again. I started talking in my sleep. She shook her head in embarrassment. It's called somnecology. I looked it up. I shrugged and laughed out loud. My demeanor seemed to say, that's it. No, Stephen, listen, she said. She wasn't laughing. It's bad. It's completely out of control. It's not just random words or gibberish. No, it's horrible. I say horrible, disgusting things. She was starting to raise her voice, breathe heavily and tear up. I approached her and held her. I told her it couldn't be that bad. I told her to spend the night and I told her she was probably exaggerating. Well, I was wrong. That night she stayed at my house, but she warned me of something before falling asleep. Whatever you do, don't wake me up. It makes me really scared and disorientated if that happens. And don't respond to me, just ignore it. I nodded and agreed. If it becomes too much, she continued. Just leave the room and sleep on the couch, I won't mind. I told her not to worry about it, I told her that it wouldn't be a big deal. I told her I wouldn't leave to the couch i'd stay beside her in the bed but i was wrong i couldn't even last one night we both fell asleep without incident i don't know how many hours had passed but i woke up in the dark with the sensation that someone was watching me and then i remembered she was with me she was actually spending the night i smiled but then i noticed the shadowy outline of her sitting up in the bed she was looking down at me staring it creeped me out, I admit it. Her posture was entirely different. It was as though it wasn't even hard at all. Then she spoke. It wasn't her voice that I heard. It was much lower and gravelly, like something out of a horror movie. "'I'll chew the skin from your bones,' she said. I froze. At first I just kept looking at her. This was not at all what I had expected. I thought it would be more like the way Tourette's is often portrayed just randomly swearing and shouting. I honestly thought to myself, what will I do if she attacks me right now? What if she really does try to chew the skin from my bones? But then she just lied down and went back to sleep. I was creeped out. I tried to lie back down and ignore her, but struggled. I could even close my eyes without thinking. Maybe she's sitting up again and staring at me. And then one time I rolled over to look at her, and she was. Her face was pressed right towards mine. Her breath was foul and rotted. Something that was most certainly not normal for her. She spoke again in the same voice as before. If you don't move to the couch, you'll be dead by the morning. That did it for me. I sat up in a moment and headed for the living room. She made some sort of wheezing sound as I left. I think it was supposed to be laughter, but I wasn't going to be able to fall back asleep. I was far too shaken. I was staring out towards a window going to see the first few hints of the sun rising, and then I thought I heard something from the bedroom. I listened, and then I heard it again. Stephen, it was the same low and gravelly voice, it sounded like a witch. I tried to just ignore it at first, but then it continued. Stephen! Still, I said nothing. I know you can hear me, Stephen, you're awake now. Why don't you come back into the bedroom? The voice barely sounded human. Or maybe you'd prefer if I come to you. I still didn't say anything. I was told not to, but I listened. If I heard her start walking towards the bedroom door, I'm not even joking, I would have run right out of the apartment. But she had asked me not to respond to her sleep talking, so I didn't. And then I heard her once more. Sorry if this spoils your plans, she began laughing. The two of you were supposed to walk the trail again, she started. I wasn't even remotely prepared for what she'd said next. You'd both be so tired when you'd reach the top, you'd look over the city, then you'll get on one knee and bring out the ring, she began laughing. And that's when I realised this wasn't just a problem with sleep talking, it was something much, much more, something supernatural. I had never told anybody about my proposal fantasy. There was simply no way she could have known about any of it. This was no longer i merely talking in one's sleep. This was about possession. I can't go back into that bedroom, I have no idea what would happen if I did. Instead I'm going to wait it out, holding up in my living room until the sun rises. I have a couple more hours yet. I can hear her laughing occasionally in the bedroom, it's still not her voice. Still. The same low-pitched cackle. But as I sit on my couch writing this, here's what scares me the most. Maybe my infatuation and utter obsession with her wasn't normal. I said before that I felt like I was losing control of myself. More so, I believe, than the typical falling-in-love story. No, I fear that the infatuation I felt was this entity slowly taking control of me, of it controlling my thoughts, fears, ambitions and anxieties. Maybe once I become completely absorbed, a transfer would occur, and she would be free of it. I know I should leave, I should open the front door, get in my car and drive far away from here, but I can't, I can't leave her, I've already lost control. I am infatuated with her, utterly infatuated. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed, then let me know what story was your favourite and why. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening, and I'll see you all in the next one. Thank you.